0: Good Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We've got Dr. Cal Beisner joining me this hour. I'm looking forward to hearing from him. I was reading an article online and it was written by none other than Cal Beisner. I thought I'm going to call him and hear it right from the horse's mouth. He is the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. You can go to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about Cal and his amazing think tank of thinkers. Cal, welcome. Well, gee,
1: thanks, Bill, but
0: what kind of horse am I? Ah, uh, well, you're the one that's, <laughs> that's going to talk in the next uh, 20 minutes. That's the one. Oh, so, I mean, this is like Mr. Ed, huh? Exactly. I love Mr. Ed. That was a great show. <laughs> it was, yeah. Who doesn't love a talking right. hey, horse? thanks
1: very much for having me back on the, sh- on the show, Bill. I really yeah. appreciate it.
0: Well, you wrote an article with VJ uh, about uh, climate scientists admit exaggerated warming, and that caught my attention.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, a kind of a rare thing, but there is a, a group of scientists uh, who who uh, have studied, uh, who have recently published something that acknowledges that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is relying on models that it, that exaggerate global warming. And what's amazing about this is that these scientists actually are scientists involved in the IPCC. Uh, This is kind of the the first time the IPCC uh, has had people come out and admit this.
0: So this story is headlines in the news, no? Uh, No, the story
1: is largely ignored by most of the media. And why is that? Typical for this. Well, you know, part of it is just the old journalists saying that bad news is good news and good news is no news. Right. Uh, That's because, you know, human psychology being what it is, people get excited about reading stories about crisis, about existential threats and tragedies and whatnot. Sure. And they're not really all that interested in in uh, positive, uh, you know, good news. And of course, eyeballs are what advertisers pay for, yeah, and advertisers time. pay the bills for the journalists. You know, so hey, you, you don't see many good news uh, articles. Um, but another part of it is, frankly, that so much of the journalistic community, and so much of the political community, and unfortunately, even so much of the scientific community are committed to the notion of catastrophic man-made global warming uh, to the point where they're simply not willing to allow uh, balancing information to see the light of day. Um, You know, clear back in the 1980s, the Society of Environmental Journalists actually adopted a resolution saying that they should no longer try to do objective reporting about environmental issues. They should be advocates. Hmm. Well, as a former newspaper reporter and editor and the son of a lifelong uh, journalist, I can tell you that is death knell to true journalistic uh writing. You have to do your very best to be objective and and that's not what these folks are doing. But the cool thing on this is that uh we now have it from people on the inside that uh that the the models on which the IPCC relies um, are are causing, you know, or rather they're they're simulating too much warming. Uh, and uh, so this is this is discussed in an article in Science magazine uh, by Paul Vusen that came out back on July 27. And uh, uh, part of what that says is that as climate scientists face this alarming reality, the climate models that help them project the future have grown a little too alarmist. Many of the world's leading models are now projecting warming rates that most scientists, including the model makers themselves, Believe are implausibly fast. Uh, now, you know these new admission, admissions, frankly, reaffirm findings from clear back in 2014 and 2019 that most models exaggerate warming. Uh, though the evidence is that they exaggerate not just a little bit, but a lot. Frankly, uh, the fifth generation of these computer models, the ones that uh, underlay the 2013 fifth assessment report from the IPCC. On average, they they modeled about two to four times as much warming as actually observed. Uh, now the sixth generation, you would think that they might be improved by now, but the sixth generation, which underlie this latest assessment report from the IPCC, they overstate warming even worse, uh, anywhere from about two to five times hmm. the actual observed warming. Uh, which indicates that the roughly forty billion dollars a year that governments uh pay to computer modelers for climate models isn't buying them much
0: um, that's that's very interesting cal um some of these some of the scientists and what they have found acknowledging that these uh models have errors. Is that going to be mm-hmm. a, a step for climate science to sort of uh, let the pendulum swing back into the middle a little bit more? Or is that going to return uh, to a little bit of normalcy or n- well, what do One you think? would
1: hope so. Yeah. You know, historically, science has been fairly self-correcting, uh, partly because skepticism is of the very essence of science, uh, a, a great uh, philosopher of science uh, Robert Merton back in the 1930s wrote about that fact um that uh in many other uh endeavors skepticism is is sort of a you know what a, 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 a weakness or okay. uh, something considered sin- sinful but Merton said that uh uh The institution of science makes skepticism a virtue. And so, you know, science can be self-correcting until it becomes highly politicized, and then the self-correcting process becomes a whole lot slower. But I think we may be beginning to see that happening now with climate science.
0: Interesting, Cal. Are some of these scientists more willing to uh, test some of the uh, climate doomsday narratives now?
1: Yeah, I think some of them are um you know this uh the uh, the statement by <coughs> excuse me um by uh oh I'm looking for it here in my article. Uh Gavin Schmidt has been uh he is the uh director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies at NASA. He says quote It's become clear over the last year or so that we can't avoid this uh and and that is the fact that the models run hot uh, that's a good in uh, good uh admission uh, particularly by Schmidt because Schmidt has for the past oh roughly twenty years been one of the most adamant critics of anybody who says that the models run hot. so you know this is kind of like a a major conversion <laughs> going on here.
0: Interesting. Um, there's uh, there's one narrative that I think most people hear, and that is mild hysteria. So, as Christians, yeah. Well, I'm trying to be gentle here. Um, is it more than mild? It's extreme. Not is it extreme, or where where does it lie? Well, I mean, you know, a, a few
1: years ago we had uh, AOC telling us that we have. Only uh, only 12 years to solve the climate problem, or all we're all dead. We've got uh, we've got the uh, the uh, Swedish girl Greta Thunberg telling us all that uh, you know that we are killing the planet, and uh, many of her followers think that that they won't grow up, that they won't reach adulthood, wow. that, that humanity will go extinct before then. So I'd say that's not really mild
0: yeah that's an excellent point um but as Christians, we start to see how the slight w- warming has been really helpful for people around the world in terms of feeding each other and or feeding oh, absolutely. Uh, the the world and also the the increase in temperature has been keeping some people from literally dying
1: yeah, and there are a variety of ways in which that happens. One of them is simply that as global average temperature rises and it's risen. Oh, around about one to one and a half degrees Celsius since 1850. Uh, As global average temperature rises, cold snaps become milder and less frequent and and last shorter Mm -hmm. times. Well, cold snaps on average kill 20 times as many people per day as heat waves. So even if we were seeing heat waves uh, increase as much as cold snaps are decreasing, we'd be seeing a 20-fold decrease in lives lost because of extreme temperatures. But actually, the heat waves are not increasing in frequency or intensity because most of the warming that's happening is happening toward the poles, that is in latitudes that don't get that hot anyway, uh, mostly in the winter, not in the hot summers, and mostly at night. So they're raising lower temperatures and not raising higher temperatures. So consequently, it's just a win-win there. But besides that, the warmer temperatures, especially because they're primarily toward the poles, wind up expanding arable land, that is land that we can farm because places that used to be too cold become warm enough for farming to take place and that's already clearly been happening. And then besides that, the CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere that is contributing some to some warming also makes all the plants grow better. And so we've got satellite imagery, for example, that shows very clearly that leaf coverage all over the world Is increasing very significantly over the last 50 years or so and that's good news for everything that eats plants and Mm -hmm. everything that eats something that does eat plants and and the poor benefit more from this than anybody else Uh, the value of added crop production from 1960 to 2012 has been estimated to be just about 3.2 trillion dollars solely from this added co2 in the atmosphere there are plenty of other, you know, causes for other uh, added value, but the CO2 alone, about $3.2 trillion. And then if we forecast from 2012 to 2050, we can expect about another $9.8 trillion of extra crop production uh, just because
0: of more CO2 in the atmosphere. So that's mm-hmm. good news. That is good news. Cal, you know when you drink a Mr. Misty too fast and you get that brain freeze? You know that, yeah, Yeah. this this is what happens to me when I start reading headlines relative to climate change, because the climate scientists have admitted there's exaggerated uh, warming. But when we come back, I want to talk about a new climate report that kind of talks the opposite. So uh, Cal Beisner, Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. We're going to take a little break and be right back. Welcome back. I've got Dr. Cal Beisner as my guest. He is the founder and national spokesman for the cornwallalliance.org. Every time I go to that website, Cal, I always find very interesting articles written by very smart people.
1: Well, thanks. We we try to make sure that's always the case. <laughs> There's a lot of
0: brainiacs over there at the Cornwall Alliance, and I know you're one of them, but uh, this article that I'm, I want to refer to now is actually one written by you. So, you're the expert on this one, and it's this new climate report. It's got you shaking in your boots. Yeah, right. Uh, and,
1: of course, it's about the what's called the sixth assessment report, just out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, uh, unfortunately, there is a, uh, a very, very consistent phenomenon that happens every time one of these reports comes out. The press releases and the summary for policymakers that come from the IPCC exaggerate badly what's actually said in the substantive science sections of the report. Now, in this case, this this first volume of the report, uh, this is working group one, the physical science basis, this first volume is 3,949 pages long. I confess I have not read it in its entirety yet. Uh, It just came out a couple of weeks ago, Uh, and I probably never will read the uh, the whole thing. Uh, (laughs) But um, in the scientific portion, there's actually a lot of good science, a whole lot of good science. Uh, But the summary for policymakers is put together not by the scientists, but by government bureaucrats from countries all over the world, and it tends to grossly exaggerate what's in the scientific portion, largely in order to promote the policies that the uh, rulers of those countries want, uh, such as uh, President Biden now with the United States as a major contributor to the IPCC. Uh, But then the media tend to exaggerate even what comes from the summary for policymakers and politicians exaggerate what comes from the media. So it's kind of like a, you know, a game of telephone mm-hmm. <laughs> where you, know, you start out with one thing and you wind up with something very, very different. Um, so that's, that's a major problem. Uh, but in this case, uh, the, the, the report does a pretty good job. I think it's very responsible in how it, how it talks about extreme weather events um, the the media tend to say, oh, there's a great increase in the frequency and the intensity of floods and droughts and hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires and all sorts of other things uh, because of man-made global warming. The well, reality is there has been no upward trend in the frequency or intensity of any of those things during the period of so-called man-made global warming. Uh, So uh, there's just nothing to explain there. Uh, And this report actually makes that pretty clear. Uh, But there is another problem with the report, and that is that it relies very heavily on very extreme scenarios of energy consumption Mm -hmm. uh, going off into the future. And let me explain how this works. We talked earlier about how the computer models that the IPCC uses Uh, forecast more warmth than is even plausible, Uh, not just more than is likely, but that is even plausible. And now even people like Gavin Schmidt of NASA are saying that. Well, why does that happen? It's partly because of the structure of the models themselves. They assume that the various feedback mechanisms that respond to more CO2 in the atmosphere generally uh, increase rather than diminishing the effect of that CO2. And there's some good reason to think that uh, some of them, especially clouds, the most important, uh, actually do the opposite. But the other reason is that all of these models are based on scenarios for the future use of energy that are not just not very likely, but quite implausible and indeed outright false already, proven false. Um, These model, these, these scenarios cooked up by the IPCC all assume that we will continue to use coal and not just continue to use it at the level that we have done in the past, but use more and more and more of it per capita alongside a growing population from now to at least 2080, perhaps 2100. Well, the reality is that starting about 2014, global consumption of coal per capita uh, peaked and began to decline, and there is no reason to think that that's going to turn around anywhere in the near future, but coal is the biggest emitter of co two in generating energy, so that means that the assumption behind all of these scenarios is already proven false so Dr. Roger Pilkey of the University of Colorado, a major scholar in this field, has pointed this out, and so the the models start off with wrong scenarios about the future use of energy, and then they plug those scenarios into uh, an understanding of atmospheric chemistry that already exaggerates the impact of CO2, so you get a double exaggeration. That's something that really needs to be fixed, and let's hope that maybe by the next assessment report, which might come, oh, another five, six, seven years from now, they will fix that.
0: Yeah, because when you start to hear that, uh, and you mentioned this in your article, that the media will say that it's sinful to use fossil fuels to heat or cool your home or cook your food or power your car, I get real nervous when I start hearing that. I mean,
1: it's sinful to disobey God's word. Yeah, because uh, quite clearly, uh, fossil fuels, along with nuclear especially, and run-of-river hydro um are the most reliable uh, the most uh, dispatchable the most scalable the most affordable the most abundant energy sources that we have and it takes energy to do absolutely everything on which human beings depend for our health and our life okay. growing food transporting it you know uh, processing it uh, making clothing shelter transportation communication medical care education everything that we you know, that we do depends on energy and uh, the, the the sad thing is that what we're being pushed to do is to replace these uh, affordable abundant reliable fossil fuels with much more expensive and most importantly unreliable unscalable and Intermittent uh, uh, wind and solar energy sources. Uh, and unscalable means it's just not possible to bring them up to the vast amounts of energy that are necessary for a modern economy that actually keeps people out of poverty. And unreliable means, well, <laughs> you can't generate energy from wind when the wind isn't blowing mm-hmm. or from sunlight when the sun's not shining. And they don't blow or shine all the time. They they get interrupted, interrupted the sun very regularly and, and wind uh, sporadically. Yeah. And the result is you wind up with a uh, an inconsistent flow of energy into the grid, which destabilizes it and leads to power blackouts and the like, like what we saw in Texas back in February with the big cold snap there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh- Cal, I just have thirty seconds left, but do you know are you familiar with Mike Adams? He repeatedly written sure about am. the benefits of increased c o two levels that have had on the planet yes. that it's essential for plant life to flourish
1: yep good guy he's written some really good stuff in that uh, and in these last few seconds, may I just quickly mention of course that. Uh, In August, we are offering to send free as our way of saying thanks when somebody makes a donation of no matter how small it is at CornwallAlliance.org, a study by Robert Bryce called Not in Our Backyard, Rural America is Fighting Back Against Large-Scale Renewable Energy Projects. It's a great study, and it'll help people to keep from winding up with giant wind factories practically in their backyards that reduce property values and harm health.
0: Cal, thank you so much. Always a delight to have you on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much, Bill. You bet.
0: Dr. Cal Beisner has been my guest, director and founder of the Cornwall Alliance, cornwallalliance.org. After a break, we're going to talk to Nikki Kosiaras. She's written a book called Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. That's all next. Welcome back to the show. We're so uh, glad that you are with us today. We've had uh, a small te- technical problem with our guest, so we may or may not have her with us today, but she's, uh, I, I read parts of her book, and it was the five best decisions to make when life is hard and doubt is rising. And she talks about how hard circumstances can some, can sometimes stir something so destructive in your soul, and that's doubt have you gone through something really painful really hard and what it produced in your in your heart was doubt and didn't didn't that break your heart more than anything um so we're going to find out exactly what those five things are because i know we've all gone through these times and these challenges where we have been left uh in a very devastated place and nikki's going to talk about this uh we do have her on the on the line so we're going to bring her on she um is the author and speaker with Proverbs 31 Ministry. She speaks nationally and she hosts her own podcast. Uh, her and her husband own a small farm just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. So she's with us now. Nikki, welcome.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah,
0: Nikki, you know, I love your energy. You're all bright and cheery. But when I read what you've gone through, I, I go, I'm so pleased to hear you bright and cheery. <laughs> because come on, Nikki, you've been through a lot.
2: I know. You know what's so funny is... There's actually a really bad storm happening outside right now, my window. Oh, no. Um, and it's such a reflection of what the last few years um, have looked like for me because it has been a really hard, hard season, uh, much like pretty much everyone else in America and across the world. We've had a really, really hard um, couple of years now, and it's, it's feeling kind of like there's like a cloud following us, like what I'm looking out the window at right now.
0: But when I'm looking at your story, just in the last couple of years, you, you, um, you lost your mother, which was of course terribly painful. And then your brother, you lost a suicide, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. his battle with addictions. And then the pandemic breaks out and there's all these other things, uh, that are personal. And, um, in spite of all this, you have found hope and this is what we're excited mm-hmm. to talk to you about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, but I I don't want to paint a picture of, like, I just, you know, woke up one day, and there was just all this hope all of a sudden. You know, this has been—I um, mean, we're going on three years now since my mom died and, you know, a year and a half since my brother died. Um, and so it's been a long process of God healing some of the broken places inside of me um, so that today I can pass that same hope along to someone else.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you first realized that you were dealing with doubt because when when hardship comes into your life and something is very painful that's one of the painful side effects is doubt like oh where was god in all this and why am why am why is this so hard so yes. did you find yourself questioning god's goodness
2: Oh my goodness yeah yes and you know I don't think this is something that we, when I say the church, I don't, of course, I don't mean a building, um, but we as followers of Jesus, the church, his bride, I don't think we talk about this enough. And uh, this kind of seems to be like this, you know, unrecognizable, unspoken little sin in our lives where you know, doubt starts to write a story of unbelief inside of us, where um, we look at the world and we say things like, "Well, God is good for everyone but me," and it becomes this story, this narrative that we start to write. Like God is angry at me, God is mad at me, God doesn't like me, I'm not God's favorite, um, and so He just keeps allowing these painful experiences um, to, to come into my life and. You know what I've really found is it's the complete opposite. You know, um, we as a culture have messed up that word favor uh, because we do relate it to favorite, right? Like when I when we think someone has favor on us, it means that you know we're their favorite. But to have favor from God, we all have the same access to God's favor, and it's His protection, it's His security, it's His mercy, it's His kindness in the midst of something that feels really really hard and that's what you know we see through the biblical account of noah that i write about in the book um that's what it meant for noah to have found favor with god it wasn't like this ding 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 he won the lottery (laughs) um it was this this deep presence that god had with him in the midst of his hardships
0: well the, the nikki uh Kosiar is my guest, and she's written a book called Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. So obviously, uh, Nikki, you used uh, in your book Flooded, it talks about the life of Noah and, and how it really helped you rebuild your faith in God. What drew you to Noah and his situation?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that I do as a Bible teacher, um, we're not supposed to use the scriptures to make ourselves feel better, okay? (laughs) Um, But one of the things that that I I tend to look at it and I say, okay, God, you've given us all this wisdom, all these people, all these heroes of our faith who have gone before us. What can they teach us about where we're at in our lives today? because sometimes we're looking for pastors and counselors and bible teachers like to give us this five-step formula, right, for right. how to how to overcome the world, but everything that we would ever go through as humans, there's someone in the scriptures who's already gone through it. And so when it comes to impossible hard and doubtful situations, Who else was given, I mean, other than Jesus, I mean, in, you know, the Old Testament, who else was given an assignment that the entire world looked at him and said, I'm sorry, what? You've lost your mind. You're crazy. (laughs) This is ridiculous that you're building this massive ark and you're bringing all of these animals in. And um, so I think Noah is such a strong, wise person for us to follow after when we feel like we're becoming full of doubt.
0: No, I love that. Now, Nikki, you, you described five decisions that Noah made, and the minute I saw that, I got very intrigued, and these are decisions that Noah made that helped you deflect some of the doubt that you were having in your own life. Uh yes. So what were the decisions that Noah made? I can hardly wait. I'll, ha- I'll hang up and listen.
2: Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> all comes from the scriptures. I didn't just pull these out and just make them up. But like, so decision number one is to walk with God. And so we see that Noah was a man who walked with God, but you know, you and I know that God does not force us into anything. He invites us in, but it's our decision whether or not we're going to walk with him. And then we see decision number two, to listen to God, right? Like God is speaking all day long, but are we listening? Um, We're hearing, but are we actually listening? There's a big difference. And Noah listened because, again and again, we see in his or in his biblical account, God commanded Noah obeyed. God commanded Noah obeyed. Then we see decision number three to rise above doubt. You know that was the place where he made the decision to come into the ark despite what any what was saying, um, any of his circumstances looked like. Um, And it was it was a hard decision, I'm sure, to do that. But he decided to do that. And then decision number four is to remember who is in charge. And consistently we see through the biblical account of Noah that he didn't question God. It doesn't mean he didn't have questions for God, like, God, well, how is this going to work with bringing all of these animals in? Um, but it means he never actually questioned who God was. And then we see um, decision number five, to find the familiar faithfulness of God. And we see this at the end of the story when Noah comes out of the ark. The very first thing that he does is he begins to build an altar and he begins to worship and praise God. And we don't see God commanding him to do that. But we know that Noah knew that he had to get off that ark in a world that looked so unfamiliar, so hard, so impossible to do the one thing his soul knew how to do, and that was to go back to that sacred place of worship and sacrifice before the Lord, because that's where he felt God's presence.
0: That's fantastic. Nikki, can I pick one of these decisions that Noah made and have you talk about it some more? That's awesome. I would love for you to to talk about when God commanded and and that and Noah listened. What tell tell us why that is so important? Because it seems like today Christians are are increasingly more uncomfortable with silence and listening.
2: Okay, so I'm going to be honest. I am too. <laughs> okay. I uh, I hate silence. Like I, you know, we live on a farm, and so there's lots of noise all the time. Um, and I love listening to podcasts and worship music, but you know, one of the things that, um, I don't think we do enough of in our, our culture today is to remember some of the spiritual disciplines that are in the scriptures. Now I hate that word discipline. And a lot of hmm. people do because it reminds us of like going to the principal's office, we're in yeah. trouble. Okay. Yeah. Not that kind of discipline. Or you got to um, do burpees or something. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Right. So we can think the word habit, right? Like things that we saw people in the scriptures do, including Jesus, that can strengthen our relationship with God. And silence and solitude is one of the spiritual disciplines, okay? And so kind of one of my themes in my life is if it seems like God is quiet, I need to get quiet because God's never the one who stops speaking to me. I'm the one who Mm. starts to fill my life with so much noise, I can't hear Him. And so um, I do challenge the readers in the book, you know, to try to sit still for 10 minutes, set that timer on your phone, and don't pray, don't talk, don't write, don't read, don't, don't, you know, don't do anything, just sit in silence and see what happens between you and the Lord.
0: That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, Nikki Koziar is my guest, and she's written a book called Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. And guess what? She's made three copies of her book available for listeners. So if you want to get in and be part of that drawing, all you do is text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Again, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. We've got three copies of Nikki's book flooded that we can give away. Uh, so all you got to do is send a text, and then we will take a short break and and be right back with Nikki Cozier in just a minute. With Nikki Cozy are. I always want to freeze a little bit, Nikki, when I see your last name because it has a Z on the end of it. That's silent. Yes. <laughs> and I do want to I do want to I do want to add the Z in there because you've got two Zs in your last name.
2: Well, actually, no, it is. It's Cozy R's.
0: Oh, it is. Okay.
2: Yes, I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Rosie said it's uh, the second z is silent. So uh we just miscommunicated a little
2: bit. Sorry about that. No, yeah, co- no, nope. Nikki Cozy R's. But you know what? People say it however they want to say it, so you're good. Okay,
0: I'll, I'll <laughs> take full blame, Nikki. Nikki, I'll t- take full blame. I was listening to your uh, some of your previous YouTube interviews, and I, th- gosh, I could have sworn it was Cozier. Uh, so
2: okay. that is not Don't on worries. Bill. No worries.
0: Well, I've m- been mispronouncing your name this whole interview, and you've been so pleasant to me. So thank you so much.
2: <laughs> no problem.
0: Yeah. All right, I want to go back to uh, something from your book, Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. Um, when Noah was choosing to rise above his doubt, okay, Nikki, let's just talk turkey here. Sometimes our internal doubts are just increased by other people saying, well, you really can't do that. or uh, This was stuff that Noah certainly experienced. I mean, what was it, 125 years? He spelled spent building the ark with people coming by mocking him every day? What are you doing? What a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. Noah definitely had naysayers in his life. And, uh, you know, I think each of us, if we stopped for a minute, we could think of someone who has been a naysayer in our life. But there's also a hard flip to that. We've probably been a naysayer to somebody else, too, at some point in the process because we're human, right? And so doubt is just a story that is constantly being written through everyone in every situation, hard, you know, crazy out there that we're going through. So, you know, the scriptures don't tell us a lot about what was happening in Noah's community. Um, But listen, I have been married for 21 years and I know Noah was married for a really long time. And so when my husband Chris comes home with an idea that is a little bit kind of, I'm not too sure about that, honey, you know, um, I can I can think it would be safe for us to assume that Noah's family was probably one of the first naysayers. <laughs> you know, like, I'm sorry God said what? And you're going to you're going to do what? And where where are we going to build this ark? And how is this going to happen? And um so he probably had to wrestle through that first initially. Um but we know that the scriptures tell us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so For sure, Noah was, you know, out and about telling people um, that this flood was coming, that, you know, um, mass destruction was going to happen. Not exactly a happy message, right? Um, But 100% people had to be like, you are insane. We've never seen a flood before. Mm -hmm. You're building an ark nowhere near water. Like. (laughs) what are you thinking? Um, and so it, it had to have happened. And, you know, the the sad reality is when I start to think about, you know, when the flooding did come, and this is kind of just a sober reality of this story, like, think about the people running towards the ark, banging on the door, the children screaming. I mean, these are things we don't really think about, right, when we read this story. Um, but they are things that 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 definitely happened. So, he definitely had to have had voices um around him that were criticizing him and mocking him and a huge naysayer for sure in his life.
0: Yeah, you think of his kids too. They worked so hard hauling all the gopher wood and the pitch and they were at it forever and they had to deal with probably some of their own ridicule and boy your dad seems kinda nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there there were naysayers all over the place. Um Nikki, can you offer maybe some some tips for people who are trusting God in very difficult circumstances. And they've mm-hmm. got their own naysayers. And they're hearing mm-hmm. this today going, I, I'm getting negative vibes from people.
2: hmm Yes. So here's something very valuable that I have learned in my life. Um, there's a difference between a naysayer and someone who really cares about you. And I kind of have found that the difference between the two, um, the naysayer, uh, they love to show up on social media. They love to just kind of pop into your inbox, a text message. They're kind of just in and out of your life. And they love to vocalize their opinion um, to you. But the difference on the other side of the person who actually cares about you, like sometimes we do need people to look at us and say, okay, this is a great idea, but have you thought about this and have you considered this? And, you know, that wisdom that comes from community and from relationships of people um, helping us sort through things because – The thing is, is that if God gives us an assignment that feels impossible and feels hard, yes, there's going to be people saying, don't do it, you're crazy, that's wrong, it's done, you heard from God wrong. But then there's going to be the other people that say, okay, if God said this, then let's walk through this together and let me help you um, discern what God is speaking to you about in this situation right now. And so I do think that at some point Noah's wife had to become kind of that anchor Um, in their relationship and in um, this assignment that felt impossible, um, because he needed to have somebody by his side that trusted and believed in him and spoke truth into him. And so I don't know how God worked all of that out. That's one of the questions I have for him when I get to heaven. Um, But I'm confident that there had to be someone who walked with Noah through that.
0: Well, most definitely. Uh, Nikki Kosiars is my guest. Her book is Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. She's nice enough to offer three copies of her book uh, to give away. So if you want to be in on that drawing, you know how that works. You text the word book to 877-933-2484. Just the word book, four letters, Nothing in uh, quotations or nothing else. Just the word book, Eight seven seven We'll get you in on the drawing for uh, Nikki's book, Flooded. Um, you talk about finding the familiar faithfulness of God. That's such an interesting expression, Nikki. I'd love for you to say more about that.
2: Yes. So, you know, when we think about, um, I mean, let's just think about the reality of what we've walked through um, for the last 18 months here in the United States and across the world with COVID. Uh, you know, nothing really feels super familiar anymore, right? Like we kind of don't even know what to do. Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Do we do this? Do we do not do that? Um, and there's so many different opinions, and it, it's kind of strange because as you know, I've been out teaching again um, in in crowds—not huge crowds, but in crowds—it feels different, right? Like everyone's just kind of on edge. And think for a second what that was like for Noah to have come out of. Over a year of being on the ark. You know, most people, this is where it gets kind of messed up in our heads with the stories. They think it was just 40 days and 40 nights. He was on that ark for an entire year. He was the first one who God called to a stay at home order, (laughs) like on (laughs) the ark by God. Okay. And so, just kind of like when the country opened back up and, you know, people have been kind of like tiptoeing back out and, oh, what is this? And how do we handle this? And, you know, Noah had those same frustrations and those same fears. I mean, probably at a grander scale than anything that you and I are experiencing today. But, you know, he he was on this ark for over a year. There had been mass flooding. Think about what flooding does just in our little areas, like on our farm when it floods. I mean, big, you know, ruts go into the ground and trees can get knocked over. Think about the entire earth covered and water and how different the landscape alone would have looked. And, you know, I wondered, like, this I don't know, this is just kind of how my brain works. Like, did he come out and he was like, okay, I know God said everyone, but who's on the ark, but hello, is there anyone else out there? Like, did anyone survive? Am I the only one here? And kind of that reality sinking in, like, oh, gosh, we're it. Like, none of this feels familiar right now. And so, like I said in the beginning, when Noah built – that, um, altar and he began to worship and sacrifice. Um, that was what he knew to do to find that place of God's presence in his life. And I'll be honest with you, when I walk through something really hard or as, you know, as the country is coming out or wherever we're at in the midst of the season, like is our first response to worship and sacrifice? No. Like our first response is, let me figure this all out. And let me, let me just, do the next thing and just keep going. And, you know, that's actually one of the things that people tell you when you're experiencing really bad grief, right? They say, like, just try to do things that that feel normal or, you know, feel familiar to you. And so in our souls, like, we have to find that place with God where You know, nothing around us feels familiar right now. It feels like we're in a very changing season in our world. And so we know, though, that seasons come and seasons go, and the faithfulness of our God, it remains the same in every single season. But are we willing to take the steps to get to that place where we can feel that familiar presence of God again?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Nikki, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but may I please ask you about your brother Mike and his struggle with mental illness and addiction?
2: Yes, 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 yes. So, uh, yeah, my brother struggled for, um, gosh, over a decade um, with uh, drug addiction. It came from a really bad accident that he had had. He got addicted to pain medicine first, and um, it just kind of was this downward spiral And unfortunately, when my mom was um, in the midst of her, she she was given six months to live. um, He actually um, tried to commit suicide several times during that season, which made that season really, really hard. Um, But unfortunately, after she passed away, you know, I think he just kind of got to the point where I talk about in the book of where we get to in our souls, where we're just kind of past the point of no return. And um, I don't believe. Hear me say this. I do not believe that mental illness ever defines our eternity. And so I know that my brother was a Christian. I know that he is with Jesus right now. Um, but he got to that place in his spirit and his faith where he just he just was past that point. And so um, he uh, went kind of on a downward spiral after my mom died and um, ended up homeless. Actually, it was very tragic. We had done everything that we could do to help him. Um, and then he, um, yeah, he, he tragically made the decision to take, um, an entire bottle of Tylenol PM and, um, it was, it was just, it was the worst, one of the worst things I've ever walked through. Right. Um, and I, it still makes me sad. Like it still hurts my heart to even talk about it. Um, But I know that my brother is healed and whole today with Jesus.
0: Amen. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's not easy, but it's a a great uh, help for people who are suffering with other people who either have mental illness or addiction issues. So thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Nikki, it's been a, a delight. Um, I'm sorry about the weather you're facing in, in home in North Carolina, but I uh, appreciate you rallying and coming on and doing the program. It's been great having you.
2: Absolutely. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great.
0: You, you bet. Nikki Kosiarz uh, has been my guest. Her book is called Flooded, The Five Best Decisions to Make When Life is Hard and Doubt is Rising. She was nice enough to offer us three copies of her book. And if you want to get in on the drawing, you know that all you do is type the word book. Text it to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484, and we'll get you in the drawing for uh, maybe you're the winner. So thank you so much uh, for listening today and supporting Faith Radio. It's been wonderful spending time with you. I'm already excited about our time tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Greg Heddington's going to continue his study on the book of John, and Dr. Alex McFarlane will be joining me as well. And we're going to have a wonderful... uh, time of studying salvation as well tomorrow. That's all ahead. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.